We don't want to spend a long time trying to solve the same problem over and over and over again. Um, you know, we can spend six to 12 months now really digging into it and solving the problem. And then next year we can tackle another problem or we can try to throw a lot of random things at this um, and try to get the results solved as quickly as possible. But it's likely in five years from now, we're going to be revisiting the same problem. Um, and so that's, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, solve the problem once and move on forever. Well, a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist by trade, having spent my career working with the best performers and teams in pursuit of improving performance. And the purpose behind these podcasts is to dig into the principles, the complexities, the subtleties of performance so that we can better understand this thing that drives us to reach for more, for more achievement and for the richer experience of climbing higher. And I'll be discussing these concepts with the people who've achieved driven and explored aspects of performance in real depth. And so to this week's guest, in order to ensure that this podcast doesn't just become an echo chamber and to add diversity beyond my network, a few months ago, I put some messages out on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook, asking if anyone would make a recommendation for inspiring people who have some insights and thoughts to share. And the result of that call out is this week's guest. So thanks goes to Dylan Dalquist, who recommended Brad Dieter. So Brad was originally a biomechanist and then shifted focus to molecular physiology and epidemiology. But it wasn't in these specialist topics that the insights started to flow in the interview. It was much more about how we live, how we work, our day-to-day performance habits, parallels and allegories from the world of human function and human performance that we ended up exploring. One key area, though, really emerged, and that was the concept of consulting and how Brad set up his consultancy that I thought was really useful for the Supporting Champions audience. He talks about empowering others in what I thought was a flawless, thoughtful, diligent and almost calm way of working with people for whom he can provide a solution and not just chase down a paycheck. It was a fascinating discussion. So thank you very much, Dylan, for the recommendation. We started off by chatting about why he and his dog were up so early in the morning. What time is it there, Brad? It is uh, 6.47 in the morning. 6.47. And um, for the purpose of the podcast, how long have you been up, Brad? Uh, I've been up since about 4.30. 4.30. Do you, does the dog get up at 4.30? Um, he usually gets up about 3 and then barks for a while and then goes back to bed and then gets up. Um, yeah. Well, so he's is, usually up about 4.30, 4.45. Uh, are you unusual or is that a, a thing that, that happens in your local town? Are, you, uh, do you, are there many people that get up at 4.30 that you know? I think I'm probably the, the only person I know that gets up that early. So why did you get up at 4.30? Uh, I think it's just a habit I started in graduate school. Um, you know, when I was just had a lot on my plate all the time, I realized I was more effective early in the morning before things got super crazy and people needed my attention and the day would get sidetracked and I'd get most of my 
most of my lab work or my studying or any of that stuff done, you know, between the hours of 4.30 and 9 o'clock. Um, so I just kind of have stuck with that habit. That's interesting. So, so was that a case of you compressing your sleep so that you just you're you're just doing more through the day you're getting up earlier or you're going to bed earlier as well uh i usually go to bed about 10 o'clock um so six and a half hours of sleep most nights which for me has been fine for a long time i'm sure as i start to get older (laughs) that'll catch up but um yeah it's just been one of those things where i've ever since i was little, um, you know, probably between the ages of like 10 and 18, I was not very focused, um, you know, really struggled with like finding things to do and, and being busy and was kind of, uh, just unfocused is probably the better word. And then, you know, as I started to become an adult and I found things I was really interested in, um, I really found that I could key in on stuff and really get interested and and focus for a long period of time and get stuff done. Um, and so, you know, working for, from four 30 until six or seven at night kind of became just a normal. Um, and you know, just kind of starting my day focused has always really helped me kind of stay focused. Wow. So, I mean, it's a, it's one of the habits that we hear a lot about high performers is that they get up early and they attend to the most important thing first. Their mind is clear from their rest. They're able to really go deep on some something that, that is they want to really try and make progress on. Is that something you've you key into that you're able to sustain? Yeah, I would say I try to do all the heavy lifting really early in the day. Um, just because a lot of it a lot of really deep work takes focus you know it takes some time to get your mind mentally engaged in the task takes a lot of energy to problem solve um, and then just kind of stay focused and finish something and as the day you know I'm sure you experience this you know afternoons roll around your email inbox is pinging all over the place your phone's ringing people you know need you to finish stuff by five for them Um, and so you just you continually get pulled away from the work that you're focused on and you just it's your quality of work and your quality of focus really starts to decline as you continue to get distracted. Um, and so I found that that's, for me, that was what I always found effective. Um, you know, whether it was when I was an athlete getting up early and getting my training in first in the day, or whether it was in graduate school, getting my studying in or my lab work in, or, you know, now as a professional taking care of the big projects first thing in the morning. Yeah. Fascinating. So I'm already asking about your sleeping habits and I've only just met you and uh, <laughs> and that's that's probably a little bit too familiar of me. But could you just give us a bit of a bit of an overview as to your background and how you've kind of got to where you are today? Yeah. Um, so as a kid, I was always just running around outside playing. Um, I played basketball growing up. I played um, in high school at a pretty high level. And then played in college a little bit, um, but knew that as a six-foot white person um, with you know average skill levels and below-average athletic ability, a career <laughs> in professional basketball is probably not my best option. Um, but I was very interested in um, math and science as a as a kid. That was probably the only thing that would capture my attention. Um, I'd 
I wouldn't study for any of my other classes and I'd sleep through all my other classes as a kid just because it was not engaging or interesting. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to go into medicine of some sort and over my undergraduate career, I spent a lot of time uh, in the hospital shadowing physicians, trying to figure out what I wanted to do and realized clinical medicine was not my where my strong suit was. Um, it was not enough problem solving for me. It was a little too rote. Um, and just kind of the whole atmosphere was, I started to get a little disillusioned with that. And so I went into graduate school because um, research was interesting. It sounded challenging. It was kind of exploring the unknown and new frontiers. And I tried to marry my background with the, the athlete, the athletic side. Um, I'd worked as a strength and conditioning coach for a while. And so I went into exercise physiology research and applied that to to biomedical issues. So my master's, I did some biomechanics work, looked at, uh, you know, neuromuscular issues, um, tried to look at muscle activation patterns, musculoskeletal modeling, a lot of that stuff, um, and then did my PhD in more physiology and metabolism, um, got really interested in molecular biology did a lot of work in my PhD on molecular biology and exercise in, in diabetes. Right. Uh, and then my fellowship was kind of in the same avenue, um, but was a little more translational. So I did, I still did a lot of molecular biology work, a lot of animal model work, um, but I also did a lot of clinical epidemiology work as well. Um, I had some training in biostatistics and kind of expanded on that and, Kind of along the way after my PhD finished, I started getting involved in some industry projects, um, initially as some consulting work, and then ended up co-owning a, a couple companies, um, and now kind of head a lot of the R&D for, for those places. Oh, wow. So amazing, um, amazing journey of breadth and exploring different avenues. So you've worked in that sort of sports physiology sports performance sports biomechanics aspect there researching that to some depth but but then you've you've shifted the focus to to the diabetic disease state um the the trends from maybe pop big populations but also the potential interventions that that could uh, be effective in that area that's that's quite a that's quite a big bandwidth of of areas that you've been interested in or worked in yeah, and I think that's been – it's very opposite of the traditional model that most people have either in their careers or in, even in academia, especially where you kind of have one one area, one method of inquiry, um, and you kind of just go down that, that path as far as you can. Um, and my, my thoughts were always – Anything that's related to human health is so multifactorial. Um, you know, structure determines function, function determines structure. Um, obviously, biology is highly complex, so you need to understand systems. Um, you know, disease and performance are really on the same spectrum, just at opposite ends. And so understanding one does inform your you know, understanding of the other. Um, and so I wanted to you know, I knew that early in my career was was more about acquiring skills um, and more of meta science of skill acquisition. How do you think? How do you solve different types of problems? 
um, and networking with different types of people who were in different industries. So instead of me focusing on a very specific area, I wanted to use my early career to really just gain as many tools and skills um, and abilities to solve problems because I think that's really what it's going to take, especially as we – a lot of the lower-hanging fruit, both in you know disease prevention, intervention, and um, human performance – have really been picked. Um, I think we understand a lot of the basics, a lot of the things that are mm. easy to understand, and now it's becoming more and more complex. And I think the the wider your understanding um, and the deeper that understanding, the better equipped you are to handle difficult problems. Um, mm. And I think that's where we're at. I think we've seen that with, you know, um, progression in cancer treatment. I think we've seen that with athletes as we're trying to push further and further into different types of records. Um, you know, that, that nonlinear curve of diminishing returns, you know, we're definitely in that phase and it's going to take a wider, wider range of knowledge to start getting those last few percents of improvements or, you know, tackling multifactorial difficult diseases. Mm. Wow, that's some, some big concepts in there. What I'm hearing there is that there's this translation to be had. Can you, can you pick out a couple of examples to illustrate some of the realizations along your journey of thinking, I can take that from over here and I can apply it uh, over there? Yeah, you know, I mean, metabolism is something I've been working on for a long time. Um, and so that's probably the most readily available is, you know, this understanding of substrate utilization, um, both in terms of disease states, you know, like the type two diabetic state, um, how metabolism changes, how insulin resistance affects things, you know, some of the things you learn from there apply to, you know, athletes who are, you know, trying to use lower carbohydrate approaches, right? You can take a lot of those things and understand what's occurring at a molecular level in these athletes when they're doing this. Um, same thing with, you know, when you have clients who are athletes who are females with PCOS, right? We do know that there's, you know, the underlying mechanism of insulin resistance is not the same in those people, um, but the downstream effects and how you think about structuring training, how you think about structuring nutrition, how you think about um, programming for those types of athletes, they all are very interdigitated. Um, and you start to understand, you know, when you just understand those processes at the most fundamental level, you can start to pull away a lot of the stuff that we read that isn't true and start to give these people actual, real, useful information that they can apply to their training, to their lives, to managing things. Um, so that's probably the most readily available. Okay, so you're, you're bridging there from a very specific manipulation of um, nutrient intake, for example, that can help uh, an endurance athlete run faster if they're if they're uh, trying to upgrade their mitochondria uh, or equally you can improve insulin resistance for a uh, muscle is muscle at the end of the day and if you uh, use some first principles thinking then you can treat it or intervene or improve the function specifically as a nice example of a technical thing that that translates but uh, what I'm hearing there also is that you, you're taking a problem-solving approach to thinking about what is the what's the issue that's on the table, what's the question that you have, and and you're not necessarily taking a 
well, I've got the answer. I've got the solution to this already before I've even heard the question. You're, you're almost uh, having a curious, uh, what is the problem? How do we go about this? What's the best way to create impact for this person or a population? That's what I'm hearing from your description there. Yeah, and I would say that's incredibly accurate. Um, one of the things I've noticed of people who have been highly successful and highly impactful is they spend a lot more time asking questions and trying to figure out the real underlying problem than they do proposing solutions. Um, and I think that's that's just a those are two dichotomous ways of viewing the world and relationships and, and solving problems for people. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that I've tried to learn and employ along the way. Yeah. So if you had a master's level researching muscle activation in cyclists, if that's what you, if that was your thing uh, and that, and you just got more and more into that over the years you might get into the muscle penation or you might get into the relaxation of some of the the muscle fibers or something like that. You're getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Then you're only ever seeing the, the solution down that particular path. Whereas here it looks like you've got some depth, but then you've gone quite broad quite quickly in your in your career and and you're reaping the benefits of of that breadth. But also it sounds like an attitude a mindset of um, let's find out what my client or the person who is in front of me actually really needs before I jump to the conclusion. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the biggest challenges I think for people is stepping back and trying to figure out what the actual question is. Um, I think when you have, if you're kind of a one tool person, everything looks like it should be solved with that tool. Mm. Um, and that's usually not the case. And it, the case is usually understanding what's the correct level of analysis and what level of intervention is actually needed. Um, so, you know, understanding things at a very, very deep level can be really, really helpful. Um, but a lot of times that knowledge helps you just eliminate that as a possibility. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I cert that certainly rings true with the approach that uh, I've taken, my colleagues have taken over the years, just of, uh, I mean, I did a PhD in rowing physiology, but oxygen uptake kinetics. I might have used it once or twice over the years, but <laughs> um, it, 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 it tested my ability to assemble some words into a book um, and and defend it to a level of scrutiny, but then and I'm sure some, somebody's read it, but <laughs> that's not the thing that I think is most useful. And, and I think I, often when I find I've, I've made a mistake or I've, I haven't created the impact that I've wanted to, it's because I've probably got impatient and I've tried to move too quickly. And I thought, I think I know what this is. Yeah, I, I won't ask the questions. I'll just get straight to the advice. And then you end up backtracking and finding you're ask, asking the questions, do, doing the doing the due diligence in understanding that and analyzing the need in, in real depth. Yeah. And I would say there's never been a time where I've asked too many questions um, and not jump to an answer quick enough. That's, that's a great philosophy. <laughs> You've got to keep reminding yourself of that, haven't you? Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, and, and so you're, you're operating as a consultant, which I, I'd like to get into as a, as a, 
as a thing because I, I think this is a real concept for the future of, of work, of consulting. But, but equally, you're, you're not necessarily prescribing a process. Um, you don't have, well, you sound like you have a number of frameworks that are big, broad principles, but, and I have this, this, um, I'm actually asking this question for my own sake as much as anything, but, um, sometimes someone sits in front of me and say, I've got this problem. What are you going to do about it? How can you help me? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yet. Uh, that's quite a difficult sell as a, <laughs> as a consultant in that sense, isn't it? You, you don't know where you're going to go, the route that you're going to take, the, the things that you're going to draw on. And that's actually quite ethereal, quite nebulous as a concept. How do you, yeah, how you, do know, you navigate that? I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Uh, um, that's the, that's the multi-million dollar question, right? Uh, <laughs> Is, yeah. <laughs> how do you sell uncertainty to people? Yeah, uh, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. You know, one is what I found most helpful is being very clear in your communication and saying, you know, this is the first time that we're, we're meeting. Um, you have a problem. We have a way of solving problems that actually gets to the actual answer. And it's going to take some time and some poking and some prodding and some testing. Um, but we're trying to solve this problem once and then be done with it and then move on to the next problem. We don't want to spend a long time trying to solve the same problem over and over and over again. Um, you know, we can spend six to 12 months now really digging into it and solving the problem. And then next year we can tackle another problem or we can try to throw a lot of random things at this um, and try to get the results solved as quickly as possible. But it's likely in five years from now, we're going to be revisiting the same problem. Um, and so that's, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, solve the problem once and move on forever. Mm. Okay, so that's um, that's an interesting, almost a pitch to say, look, we don't know the answer yet, but what we don't want to do is keep going back to square one. Uh, you're you're explaining the there's a credibility from the success that you've had in the in the past that means that you're probably going to help the person climb the mountain but you're going to need to spend some time plotting a unique route based on their experience or the problem that they've got or the mountain, the unique mountain that they're going up. Yeah. And you know, it's one of those things that translates into pretty much any domain. Um, you know, if you are working with an athlete and you're trying to figure out, you know, race day nutrition for this person, you can either just give them a meal plan that says, Hey, for this race, just do this. Or you can go down the route of helping them understand here's, here's nutrient needs, here's what it actually means, here's how hydration actually works, um, you know, here's all these first order principles we know, educating them, showing them how this works, and then having them figure out, you know, okay, based on these ideas, here's what I need for this race. Next year, when it's in a much hotter environment, um, what is it going to look like? And then now they have they've solved this problem for the rest of their career, um, and that's that that applies if you're thinking about like a business situation where somebody's trying to figure out how to sell their product. You know, you can work with them to try to find out, you know, what is the underlying need this product is filling. You know, what type of sales process do you actually need to have? 
Um, you know, what is the message that resonates with people? But I think a lot of people on the other side would just figure out, okay, like what social media platforms do I need to market on? What, you know, but then what happens when social media changes? You still are, you've tried to hack the system and try to, instead of trying to solve the system. Um, and that's, I think most people try to hack the system and they don't actually try to solve it. So there we're talking about the, um, the concept of trying to find the best solution based on a whole variety of different, quite holistic, diff- uh, broad areas that can contribute, but recognizing that the, the solution might have to shift and change to um, growing demands in, in the future. Uh, a model of performance that, that you've created in 2005 might be out of date in 2010, in that sense. Yeah. All right. So... Um, I'm interested to ask you a little bit about this consulting career that you've got. So you're working and consulting. You you have this sort of advisory board, uh, health technology, biotechnology type of uh, portfolio of work. Um, how do you how do you go about how do you go about building that portfolio, um, and uh, and how do you manage it? Yeah, the building it has been. Uh, a lot of hard work um, and some serendipity and some patience. And, you know, it really started by, um, you know, connecting with people, you know, people, uh, it, just, it really started with relationships is what it started with. You know, you, you know, some people, you have conversations with them, you help them whenever they have needed help. Um, you don't ask for anything in return. And then later when they need help, you're the person who's solved problems for them in the past. They'll come to you. Um, and it, they all started off with, you know, some very basic work. Usually it was a conference call or something of, you know, hey, here's the problem. What would your thoughts be? And then it turned into more and more and more work. And as projects grew and companies were formed based on these ideas, I got brought in um, to manage projects and to lead projects. And the other thing that I did was I, I kept my like formal, you know, nine to five job throughout the whole time. Um, so whether, you know, when it started as a postdoc, I didn't leave the lab when I had initial consulting work, I stayed there, I stayed focused. Um, and I got it to a place where I could, I could thrive with leaving that kind of standard position. Um, so I didn't walk away and, go into it being really stressed out and really worried and how am I going to pay my bills? It was very much a, you know, work as long as you can, as hard as you can until you're in a place where you're comfortable enough to focus on the quality of your work and not just trying to pay my bills. And I think that, I think that idea really helped me focus on my work and not worry about all the other, all the other extraneous things that kind of bring down the quality of your work of, you know, when am I going to get my paycheck? taking projects you're not really interested in just to, you know, fill time. Um, so that was kind of how, how that morphed. Um, can, I ask then, you a few, can I ask yeah. you a few questions there? Because there was a couple of, of things in there. Uh, firstly, relationships. And secondly, about uh, ha- operating from a stable base and, and then broadening. So can I just ask you about relationships? You, you, you mentioned that as, as key as a key enabler for you to, to get moving. Those are the things that you invested in early that have yielded connections and contacts and then subsequently 
uh, work. Is that something that you you went about doing uh, systematically or deliberately, or was that just just curiosity again, just following your nose and and connecting with people and and exploring their what what's interesting for them or what their mission is and then understanding their needs? Yeah, it was definitely the latter. Um, kind of who I am as a person. I'm not a, a cold, calculating, uh, transactional person. So I didn't go out and say, hey, I want to be a highly successful, very wealthy person. So I'm going to network with people who can bring me value. Um, that was never my approach. My approach was these are people that are interesting to me. Um, they have questions. How much can I help them? You know, what, what things, what problems can I solve for them? Um, and also just connecting with people and trying to make the place, the world a better place. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time transacting from people and not a lot of time connecting with people and helping people. I mean, there, can you, can you tell me what, what sort of age you were when you had that mindset? Because that's actually, I would say that that's a relatively mature perspective to be having, um, in your formative years. Could you just position that for me? Uh, I don't, I don't ever remember a, you know, if there was ever an epiphany or an eye opening moment for me, I think it's always been just a part of who I've been. Um, I don't think I really realized it until probably the last five or six years is that's kind of what's been successful, kind of how I view things. Um, the more I've gotten involved in industry and, you know, even formal academia, as I started to see, I think I, I think I, as I matured, I was able to see how other people operated and that kind of, you know, was juxtaposed to how I approach things and view the world. And that kind of helped me understand how I operate a little better, but I don't know if there was ever a moment where I was like, Oh, this is what I should do. It's always just kind Mm -hmm. of been, I think it was a lot of how I was raised. Okay. So you you can relate that back to your parents or the environment that you were in as a, as a child. Yeah, I think so. Um, I also think growing up, I had a lot of good people around me who, you know, they didn't view, you know, things like money as, you know, this finite resource where, you know, everybody has to compete against each other to get a small piece of a pie. You know, it's, it's just a thing that is a thing. And, you know, if you don't make that the center focus of your relationships with people, everything usually ends up a lot better. Um, and it's usually kind of the product of value and good relationships. Mm. So you had this stable base of uh, a postdoc position or a fellowship, for example. And then it sounded like you were having some add-ons, some yeah. side hustle, um, some work that, that kind of filled the evening hours and maybe the 4.30 till 9.30 period of time. Uh, and you were growing up some of this additional work. Uh, is that how you went about building the consulting career? Yeah, so that's exactly how it worked is, you know, I was in the lab from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. every day for four years and um, start would, you know, get up and work on projects at home in the morning and then at night when I came home um, and then on the weekends when my now wife, when she, when we were dating and she was working, she's a nurse and works night shift. So, um, you know, 
she'd work every other weekend. And so I would just work all weekend and, and take on a lot of these projects and kind of build that out. Yeah. Okay. That, that sounds like graft though, to me, you're, you, yeah, you've got this curiosity, you're, uh, you're interested in connecting with people. It's heavily on relationships, but that takes effort. That takes diligence. That takes persistence and, uh, and, and a degree of ambition of, of doing things really well. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was born out of a few things. You know, one is I knew the hours I wasn't in the lab or, you know, being productive could be spent either, you know, whiling away the time, watching TV, you know, relaxing, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, or I could spend it doing on working on things I'm interested in um, and being productive and, and building, you know, some assets in my corner that you know, I could use to leverage my future. Um, and so that was, that sounded way more in, interesting, entertaining, motivating than, you know, just kind of, you know, getting done with work and going to the bar or, you know, sitting on the couch and watching TV. Yeah. So when you say assets, what, what are you referring to there? You know, just things that bring you more value down the road. Um, whether that's, you know, companies that you can make money off of passively as your life goes on, whether that's relationships with people who can bring you more value over time, um, whether it's a skill set that you didn't have before that you may be able to use either immediately or later on in life. Um, just anything that's, that gives you more value down the road. Okay. That's interesting. Then. So can you can you really give me an example of uh, one of the passive income streams that you've developed and curated over time? Um, yeah, quite a few. You know, a lot of the a lot of the consulting work, you know, that you you take on involves a lot of startup um, and a lot of pain and, and suffering as you, you know, have to figure out a new system and solve a new problem. Um, and then a lot of that work just kind of eventually becomes self-sustaining and just takes a little bit of guidance every once in a while. The whole idea of viewing viewing your time and projects as assets instead of just trading time for dollars. Okay, so it's not necessarily, but could be uh, some software development or some tech, um, which which is online and purchasable, um, that, that means that you can wake up and, and there's a paycheck there each day. You're talking specifically about maybe uh, developing knowledge and skills as well and viewing those as tangible assets that that mean that you don't have to go back to square one each time that you're already ahead of the curve when it comes to delivering and developing uh, a solution for somebody as well as the fact that you've you're talking about other aspects of your life in complementing that real estate or um, investment in other areas that can mean that you're propping up your supporting from a foundation your ability to uh, explore and be free again of uh, and connect with people that you're interested in again yeah and that would you know that's been a big big thing that I've always wanted to do is live a life that isn't you know just kind of grinding through a lot of stuff that you kind of just don't get to really explore and that's I think that's a a big thing that I wish more people could experience is, you know, operate from a place where you can do things you want to do versus doing things that you have to do. Hmm. Yeah. So that's a, 
an interesting pulse because if you don't have the stability of a of a full-time salaried role then you might find yourself doing things you have to do to make ends meet but eventually with the aspiration of of finding more of the want to do and then maybe exclusively the want to do in in your life yeah and i think um you know a lot of people think you can just make that transition instantly and it doesn't take a lot of legwork and and hard work and to set yourself up for that position right if i mean if you think about anybody who's gotten to those places and hasn't been you know born into some substantial amount of wealth yeah they've had to work really really hard to get there i mean think about people who are like neurosurgeons they didn't just wake up able to do that it took them 20 years of school and training and 36 hours on call and missing family holidays and all sorts of stuff to get to that place so uh so we've touched on industry your own personal industry the connections and collaborations that you're making what other top tips have you got for people around that space of of developing this consulting portfolio type career um i would say the the best two pieces of advice i can give people are probably three is do really good work, you know, hold yourself to the highest possible standard that speaks volumes for itself. Um, you know, I've been in the consulting world for a while and I've seen the work that other people have given to me versus that I've put out and you would be surprised the disparity of the level of work product that people put out. I would say that's the first one. Your work will always stand for itself. Um, and then professionalism. I think a lot of people just don't understand what it's like to be professional. You know, you, you show up on time, you, you don't miss meetings, you, you don't miss deadlines, you deliver the product you actually should deliver. You know, you, you don't overcharge people just because you can, you are respectful, you know, just a level of professionalism. I think a lot of people need more of, um, and then the third one would be taking initiative as often as possible. Um, I think a lot of people let things go by when they're uncomfortable and don't feel like they can do things is really take initiative on projects if you can. You know, Take on as much as you can and still deliver a good product. That speaks around moving out your comfort zone almost. How do you do that successfully? Because I'm, I'm really comfortable out of my comfort zone. Um, how do you manage that then? Because that's an interesting concept for a lot of people where they, they, you, we, you inherently crave comfort and stability and safety. Uh, but here we're chasing new opportunity. That itself comes with risk. Yeah, I think there's I think it's a skill set that you develop. I think some people are born with this just natural ability to take risk. Um, but I know for me it was a skill set that I developed from, it was kind of an experiential knowledge. You know, when you take your first big risk and it works and it doesn't blow up and you're okay, you start to get a little more comfortable. Um, and then when you do take a big risk that blows up and doesn't work and ends up being a disaster, but then you wake up the next day and life goes on and you're okay, you're kind of like, no matter what happens, like it's going to be fine. Um, there's going to be some pain and suffering with things that don't go well, but 
the possibility of it succeeding is usually worth way more than the failure. Um, you also start to learn how much you grow in those situations. Um, and then the other thing too, is I think people who are naturally curious or people who are trying to push themselves a little bit, they, they have to do that. Um, Mm. otherwise they just kind of wither away. Yeah. Okay. So the boredom, the, um, the aspect of mundane tasks that, that propels them to think, I'm just going to change this up. I'm just going to go and find something new that's, that's shiny and exciting. Um, but, but in some ways, you're, you're talking about really optimistic characteristics there of, of acting on your initiative and, and that, some would say, gung-ho attitude of thinking, yeah, it's fine. We, we didn't know. No one, no one died. <laughs> so let's, let's try again. Um, yeah. but, but that's counterbalanced in some ways by the quality, the professionalism, which in itself means that you are being diligent and tenacious and prepared in for those for those moments they're quite opposite but complementary if you're going to go uh, take an opportunity you're going to and really work this through before you go for it yeah i think that's that's the key is whenever you take risk you need to mitigate it as much as possible um it's kind of like if you were to invest in a business you know you wouldn't just give somebody you know a hundred thousand dollars of your own money and then be like hey come back to me in a few years and let me know how the business is going you would, you'd be like, this is my money on the line. I'm diving in. I'm controlling what I can control. My name's on this. The work product needs to be good. You know, it's the same thing with anything else that involves you and taking risk is you can mitigate that risk by, you know, making the best product possible, delivering on time. Um, you know, all those things that you can control, you should. I think a lot of people have this view of risk of, you can't control risk. And I think you can always control risk. You know, it's, Mm. if you're an athlete and you're preparing for a a race, it's, you know, what are the risk things? You should probably have your race nutrition dialed in before the day of, you should test it. You should break your new shoes in. You should, you know, make sure you have an extra tire patch in your bike and maybe even a second one, you know, you should, Make sure you're checking the weather. You should have an extra change of clothes in case it gets, in case it rains. Like all those kind of risk mitigation things. Mm. Yeah, this it's a bit of a delusion, really, that elite athletes stand on the start line and just go, "Yeah, it'd be fine. Let's just go for it." They actually yeah. stand on the start line and go, "We've sorted everything out. We're really prepared," and that gives me huge confidence because I know I know that that we've done everything that we can to to get ready. Or at least address the big priorities first. You can't do everything, but uh, you can certainly invest in that preparedness. Yeah, yep. that's interesting. So, we're, I'm really interested to find out kind of what's next for you. What the what the next steps are. I mean, we, we haven't really talked about technical stuff. We did mention um, muscle glycogen and muscles and insulin resistance once, but I'm this this is a fascinating conversation that that speaks to about a mission and a purpose and where you're going uh, and a a way of living in some ways. So I'm interested to know where's next for you. That is a great question. Um, You know, this kind of parallels a lot of my view of of who I am and what I want to do in my life is I'm maybe a little atypical and, you know, a lot of people have one area they're focused in and it's, you know, some people are like, I want to, you know, cure heart disease or I want to 
cure whatever. Um, and my view is I want to tackle the problems from a bigger perspective. Um, I want to bring kind of a, a meta perspective on these issues. Um, and I'm, what I mean by that is to make sure that we are using the full breadth of tools we have to solve the biggest problems. Um, you know, whether that is, you know, chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease, I've worked in all those spaces, um, whether it's, you know, human performance of, you know, how do we maximize human potential? Um, how do we develop technologies that help the world? is I want to bring a level of thinking and a type of approach to all of those problems that gets us to the best answer. Um, I think a lot of people who work in these spaces and get so focused on these singular outcomes, a lot of times miss better answers, right? They kind of get in this valley of thought of, okay, if we just take this tiny little piece and make it a tiny little bit better, we'll get a 1% better solution. And I want to be the person who comes into that scenario and says, okay, well, let's bring a completely different perspective that's outside of this arena that may actually get us over this valley and into a completely new arena. Um, so I think those are the types of things that the more breadth you have to draw from in the way you approach problems can help get a lot better answers. And that's kind of my what I want to do in multiple different areas. Wow. The best answers to the biggest questions. That's a, that's a phenomenal purpose. That must settle you down at night when you're thinking, what's my life about? Uh, that must be quite calming and thinking, I'm on a, I'm on a mission to, to help a whole breadth of different areas and not just think on a small level, but really think big about what the impact could be. Yeah, you know, it is. It's also very... Um... At times overwhelming because you don't always know where you stand and where to start, um, you know, on the next step because it's not super measurable, right? It's not like every day you wake up and you've just got one more step forward in the small area you have to make. Um, you know, sometimes it's you end up taking a lot of steps backwards. Uh, I remember when I was when I first went to the Olympic Games and uh, I just had my head down. I was measuring a lot of things on athletes and making sure I had really good data, um, high quality of calibrations and, pre and precision, and uh, because I didn't want to let the athletes down. Uh, and then I had, and then I got my head up, and it was just this massive sports day, um, and all these different international uh, inputs, this big jamboree, and it was just a big picture moment of thinking, "Wow, there's a bigger, there's a bigger world out here," and that. That small detail, big picture piece that you're talking about there is that it can be really beneficial for you to get high up on the mountain and, and think and see that big landscape. But sometimes that can be in itself quite overwhelming to see it all. <laughs> to be able to see it all isn't a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's sometimes where you need to just focus on this tiny little piece. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have to be able to just go in and do that small piece really, really well at that time. Yeah. OK. It's been amazing talking to you, Brad. I, I, I've been I've been really inspired, but also intrigued to, to know how you've created this journey for yourself. But also listening to you, the way you think, the way you frame things. Um, what, a, what an amazing uh, discussion. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, it's been an honor. I'm uh, I'm excited to have some more conversations with you offline and hear more about what you guys are doing and um, hear, hear a lot more about your experiences with the Olympics. That sounds like it was probably a pretty wild ride. It still is. It's uh, it's like a drug. You can't, you can't sort of switch it off, really. Uh, yeah. You're drawn back to, to working with these athletes to such an incredible, heady goal. Um, it's so intoxicating that it, it, just, it just draws you back in. And if you can contribute in some way, in some small and humble way, then that's, that's amazing too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brad. So I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you, like Dylan Dalquist, have a suggestion for the podcast, then drop us a line at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk. In the meantime, if you want to follow Brad, then you can do so on Twitter at Brad underscore Dieter. That's D-I-E-T-E-R. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and subscribe through the website for the latest blogs, updates, and news. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please leave a review on iTunes.